0: And who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way?
3: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 46 of the Man of Scream podcast. I am your host, Mike Jumo, and in this episode, we are looking at episodes 9 and 10 of season 3 of The Adventures of Superman the Magic Necklace, and the Bully of Dry Gulch. First thing I want to say before we get into business for this week is Happy New Year, everybody. This is the first episode I'm recording after the beginning of 2017. I hope everybody had an enjoyable holiday with their friends, families, and whatever loved ones they spend this time of year with. I had a decent holiday this year, you know. It was the first since, uh... Haley's mother and I split up, but, you know, I got to spend the holidays with Haley as she still lives with me, so that's really all I can ask for at this point, and really, that's all I want, so. I hope you guys had as much fun with my top ten list as I had fun uh, putting it together. I was bored, so I just thought that would be a neat little thing to put in at the end of the year. Next year, I might do it a little differently and start later. I'm not sure. I'm glad that none of the top tens that I was posting kind of influenced anything because some of the download numbers were pretty close. I didn't want for an episode to jump over another because I had posted it on the Facebook group. I thought that was a, But I thought that was a fun little thing to do for the people who are in the group. I guess you can call it the first exclusive of the podcast, being that only the people in the Facebook group got to enjoy it. So, there was that. I'm trying to rack my brain and see if I got any Superman-related stuff for Christmas. I don't believe that I did. I got a couple of movies but none of them as i recall were superman related actually most of them are marvel related kind of filling out my mcu and x-men collections although i did get a nice looking superman s shield mug that i'll put a picture of up on the facebook group at some point i don't exactly know what i'm gonna do with it yet if i'm going to actually use it for coffee or put it on my desk to use as a pen holder or something i don't know i guess i will decide that at some point in the future so I'm kind of rambling, I have no further preamble, so I'm going to take a quick break and play a promo, and I'm going to come back with The Magic Necklace. Hang around, folks.
4: Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and
5: Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths.
4: Highlights from this legendary era include... Batman number 400. Legends. Mike Barr and Alan Davis. Batman Year One.
5: Batman Year Two.
4: Max Allen Collins. Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd. Ugh. Millennium?
5: You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon The Killing Joke A Death in the Family
4: Batman Year 3
5: A Lonely Place of
4: Dying Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman?
5: The Rise of Tim Drake
4: Legends of the Dark Knight
5: And that's just up until 1989
4: Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that?
5: You'll have to tune in to
4: find out Batman Nightcast Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network
5: Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com
4: Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson.
5: You want to find another co-host? Alright, welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into
3: The Magic Necklace. Original broadcast date was September 17th, 1955. Writer was Jackson Gillis, and director was George Blair. Guest cast included Lawrence Ryle as Jake Morell, Leonard Moody as Professor Jody, Frank Jenks as Lazy... John Harmon as Clicker, Paul Fierro as AFBAR, Ted Hecht as the Hindu newsman, and Cliff Fair as the airport dispatcher. Just a couple of notes on some of the actors in this episode. Lawrence Ryle, if you remember, he played Dr. Barnack in Star of Fate. If you remember that episode, he was the scientist who was looking to get a hold of the cursed box to find out what its secret was. He's playing a similar character in this episode. Jake Morrell isn't exactly a scientist instead of more of a millionaire criminal, but like Barnack was, he's kind of chasing a magic artifact. Leonard Moody, who plays Professor Jody in this episode, is no stranger to the show. We first met him in season one episode, Drums of Death, in which he played Professor Masters. I believe that's what his name was a scientist living in Haiti, but he more famously played the role of Brockhurst back in Season 2 in The Ghost of Scotland Yard, a very spooky episode. And lastly, Frank Jenks, who plays Lazy in this episode. You know, it took me a few minutes to remember where I saw this guy, but he played the role of Candy Myers way back in Season 1, the stolen costume. You remember Clark Kent's uh, private detective friend, who Clark called to help him find out who stole the costume, which of course, Clark couldn't tell Candy what was stolen, just that it was stolen. Just a couple of fun notes on those actors, and now we're going to head into our synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Archaeologist Professor Jody has been on an expedition seeking the Taiwan necklace. According to legend, anyone who wears it is impervious to harm. The Daily Planet has reported on Jody's success. Millionaire gangster Jake Morell and his henchmen Lazy and Clicker are going through some specimens Jody sent to the Metropolis Museum.
1: Boss, a necklace from a tomb. Hey, that's it. That's the one, I'll bet.
0: Don't get excited. Professor Jody has sent back other necklaces before.
1: But maybe this is the real one.
5: Hey, look.
1: Well, there's another one. Uh, There we go again, boss. Why don't that Professor Jody just send back the one necklace? The one all them legends are all about. Quicker, take this and put it around your neck. Lazy, give him the poison. Right. Uh. Come back here. Uh. Put it on. Uh, I'm sorry, clicker. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks, Lazy. Take it, drink.
6: Uh, uh, huh?
0: oh. 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 Two minutes. If that's not the real Taiwan necklace, you'll be dead in two minutes.
1: Oh. Oh, lazy. Lazy, b- break out that antidote, will you? Huh? What do you mean? The, the stuff to counteract the poison I just drank, stupid. In case I start maybe dying or... St- you, you didn't forget to bring it, did you?
0: Uh, don't worry. I've got it. How do you feel? Any pain yet?
1: The pain? The, the... The... Boss... Boss, it must be a minute already. Give me the... Give me the,
0: the... Oh. The necklace doesn't seem to protect him any, does it? It's not keeping him from dying. Give him this.
1: What's he call this stuff? Antidote.
0: Yeah, uh, stops the poison. Or it's supposed to.
1: He's all right. All right, lazy now. It's your turn. Look, boss. Ain't there some easier way to test them necklaces? No.
3: Meanwhile, reporters Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen have arrived at the museum.
6: I don't see any lights on.
7: Of course not. Silly. The museum's closed. Well then why did you bring me along for an interview when there's nobody to talk to? I want to get a story from the night watchman.
6: What on? They only think those cases were broken into. Nothing's been taken from that museum.
7: I still want to talk to him. Come on. Lane.
6: Why do you bother with this crazy stuff about a magic necklace somebody found in Tibet?
7: Who said it's crazy stuff? It makes good copy, doesn't it?
6: Mr. Kent says it's just a legend and that it's silly to take up space in a newspaper with it.
7: Mr. Kent. Well, Mr. Kent doesn't know what he's talking about. Besides, I've only quoted Professor Jody's letters. Come on, let's go.
3: She and Jimmy find the door ajar, and Jimmy is worried, but Lois still wishes to talk to the guard. Not having found the Taiwan necklace, Morell and his men prepare to leave the museum. The gangster is suddenly met by Lois and Jimmy, who know exactly who he is
7: no, you're not. You're Jake (laughs) Morell. I mean, excuse me. Good night. Uh, No, you
6: don't.
7: You're the ones who have been breaking into the museum looking for a certain necklace. It isn't even here. Professor Jody hasn't sent it yet.
6: How do you know so much? Who are you? She's Lois Lane, that's who she is. The best woman reporter in Metropolis.
0: A reporter, eh? Might be helpful. Only I don't want any publicity at the present time, you understand. Not until that necklace is mine until nobody can hurt me in any way. You understand?
7: But that necklace is only a legend. Please let us go.
0: Lady, you're in nice, safe hands. But if there is such a thing as a magic necklace, it's going to be Jake Morell's. It's going to be mine if I have to fly around the world to get it. And in the meantime, you and your boyfriend are going on a little trip.
3: Editor Perry White has received news that the museum was broken into, and the guard knocked
1: unconscious.
8: Oh, Olson Kent! Great right see you What time did people
9: come to work around here?
1: What's the matter, Chief? The museum was broken into last night. The watchman knocked out. Well, alright. Can't you get the report from the police? Lois was supposed to handle the story, and now she disappeared, and so young Olson. Excuse me. Kent speaking. If that's one of them on the phone to some feebly excuse just you can... a minute, Chief. What's that? Her wallet! Her wallet? Yeah, uh, I understand. I'll be right down. That was the airport. They found her wallet in one the runways
3: this morning. A dispatcher has given it and a flight plan for a private airplane to Kent. His route was to Africa. Metropolis Police Inspector Bill Henderson has called Perry White to tell him that...
1: Henderson checked on that plane and Morell's the man who owns it. What else did you find out, Chief? The plane landed in Africa this noon, refueled and took off for Pakistan. Chief, you don't think a man like Morell would actually believe in this magic necklace business, do you? I don't know. A crook, even a smart crook like Morrell, might be superstitious enough to go for that gag. Hmm. Well, I'd better read through those stories in a hurry. What possible connection? Chief, a plane that lands in Africa and Pakistan might very easily be on its way to the Jody expedition. Great Siege's ghost. Ted, I want you to get on the first commercial flight and go over there. Sounds more like a job for Superman. There's no time to waste trying to find Superman. You get on that plane. I'll try to locate Superman if you really need him. Uh, sure, Chief. Now just where would I look for Superman if I really did want him?
3: We now go to Professor Jody's camp at Tibet, where a Hindu newsman is interviewing the archaeologist about finding the mystic jewelry.
1: All my life, I've been a poor, unnoticed archaeologist. I'm glad to receive the attention my little find has caused. You have found other necklaces before? Oh, many, many. The necklace is quite common in the era that I'm investigating. But in the tomb of the early chieftain Taiwan, surrounded by tablets telling its legend, I found this. Sahib, put it away. People are coming. Of course they're coming. People all over the world know of my find. A plane has landed. A plane with private markings. What's that? You must hide it. There may be danger. Danger! How could they be? I'm wearing it. This protects me from all danger. No man dies who wears this magic necklace. Please, Please, Sahib. Listen.
3: Again. Superman has arrived in Tibet. He is currently in Professor Jody's cabin as Clark Kent. Both he and the Hindu do not believe Jody's ranting about the power of the Taiwan Necklace.
1: Don't interrupt. This gentleman was laughing. He doesn't believe in the legend of the necklace. And you do believe in it? You too? Very well. Ha take my revolver, fully loaded, live shells, take it I say! Fire! Oh, so now just oh minute, no, Professor. Professor, I apologize oh, if I've offended you. you. Have I have the powers demonstrated on oh, you. Oh, no, please, no, I have apologize. Professor, I think this has gone far Bet enough. Now, please, sir. still, the American. Then people will believe. Enough Use your knife. Throw your knife so the people will see it hit him. Now, just a minute, I think this has gone Don't, far enough. you world. can't be serious. Don't worry. The knife won't hurt you. Taiwan will protect you. You'll see the legend in working. Professor, now stop this. You must. You're not well. You can't be. This is all nonsense. Excuse us. We're looking for Professor Jody.
0: My name is Morell. Clark. Lois, Jimmy, are you all right?
6: Mr. Carrot.
1: It struck him. I saw it. The bullet went through his coat, but he's not hurt. It's true. The legend of the necklace is true. Clark no longer wears a
3: Taiwan necklace as Jake Morell wishes to learn more about it from Professor Jody. What you saw was an accident.
1: The gun fell off the table, right? It struck the hammer on the floor and went off, that's all. But it fired at you. Well, that's very true, but uh, it could have been just luck, couldn't it? I mean, it, it seemed to glance off me. Buddy, uh, uh, you're Haywire. That bullet must have just plain bounced. It was the necklace. The necklace protected you. Don't be ridiculous. There's no such thing as a charm that'll protect a person from death. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's been my attitude. But uh, how did that bullet happen to just bounce? Ah, uh-uh, buddy, I'm convinced. Either it's magic or you're uh, you're a uh, uh, Superman. What? Uh, tell uh, us, you're Superman. Well, I can't do that very well. Here, let me see that neck. Don't one. touch it. It's mine. I found it. Well, all I want to know is it the real McCoy. Of course it is. You come with me, gentlemen. I'll tell you the whole story. Everybody's crazy around
7: here. Oh, is that so? Clark, how did you get here before us?
1: Oh, well, we found your wallet in the runway and Henderson traced Morell's plane. Well, I'll explain it all to you later. Come on, let's get out of here now. We've got a chance.
7: But what about the necklace, Clark? It's a fabulous story.
1: Clark
3: is now a prisoner of Morell's gang along with Lois and Jimmy. In spite of this, Jody has invited everyone, reporters and racketeers alike, to join him in the Tomb of Taiwan to hear more about the necklace. Mr. Tappet?
1: Yes. Here is where I found it. These are the instructions, the story of the necklace. It took me nearly a month to translate them. The necklace was lying in the hands of the image, the true guardian of Taiwan's tomb. It was intact. It can never be destroyed. Don't be alarmed. Nothing can harm me while I wear this. It's absolutely amazing.
0: But I think you'd be nervous digging around in a place like this. These old tunnels could cave in any minute. Oh, nonsense, nonsense. You say you translated these instructions, and the whole legend.
1: And you know how to use the necklace. Of course, of course. Clark,
7: listen. What's Morell going to do?
1: I don't quite know, Lois. I have it written down. Let's see. Not yet. Oh, no. Not yet, Mr. Morell. Clicker, the briefcase. Yeah, Watson. Lazy, get those people back. Alright. Don't you want them as witnesses?
0: Professor, when Jake Morrell pays out a million dollars, he wants nobody too close.
3: Afbar's knife and gun have no effect on Jody. Satisfied with all he's learned, Jake Morrell buys it from Jody for one million dollars in spite of Clark's belief that it is worthless. Lois tries to stop the transaction to no avail. As Lazy takes Lois and Jimmy out of the cave at gunpoint, Clicker knocks out AFBAR. Morell, not willing to let Professor Jody keep his money, knocks the archaeologist to the ground before grabbing the cash and the Taiwan necklace. Clicker is ordered to take Clark out with Lazy, Lois, and Jimmy, but after Morell leaves, Clark pushes Clicker out and causes the cave-in. Clark, Professor Jody, and AFBAR are trapped behind a wall of fallen rock. As Jake Morell's gang tries to make their escape and trap Lois and Jimmy in another part of the cave, Clark reveals to Professor Jody that he knows the truth about the Taiwan necklace.
1: servant's all right, Professor. How are you? A million dollars. My greatest chance in a lifetime. I wanted the money for my work, for my expeditions. Well, sir, that's what happens sometimes when you try to commit a fraud. What? Well, I mean, after all, first there was that fancy build-up for the legend, and all those letters to the newspapers and all that phony publicity, just so you could hook some sucker like Morale. I didn't mean any harm. How much the money has science. I know, sir, and I'm—I'm I'm sorry I saw through it. But after all, first you get yourself stabbed with a breakable knife, then you get yourself shot. Uh, of course, they use blanks, and I must say, it, you put on a very good show, sir. But you know as well as I do, there wasn't any more magic in that necklace than there is in you. It wouldn't even protect a fly. Oh no, I did wrong. It was all a fraud. But why should you be punished with me? And for after, we'll never get out of here alive.
6: I
3: don't hear anything. Morel has lit some dynamite as he attempts to escape. Jimmy has wrestled the Taiwan necklace away from the racketeer. Believing the jewelry is magic, Jimmy is not worried about the explosive going off. Meanwhile, Clark has put the light from a torch out so he can move freely as Superman. Knowing that Professor Jody and Afbar are in no danger, the Man of Steel focuses on stopping Morell and his men. Once they are unconscious...
7: Jimmy, do something! Get over there and try to put out that fuse!
6: I can't reach it, Miss Lane. Anyway, there's nothing to worry about. I've got the magic necklace.
7: Oh, Jimmy!
6: Here, we can both hold on to it, then nothing can hurt either of us.
7: You crazy kid, that's no good. Superman!
2: Superman!
7: Superman, hurry, please!
6: Ah, Miss Lane, what's the matter with you? We got the necklace to protect this.
7: Jimmy, that dynamite's going off any second. In
6: that case, we'll just throw it up to the roof. Golly, Superman, we didn't need your help. You ought to be helping Mr. Kent and the professor. Now
1: don't worry about them, Jim. They're taken care of. Oh, incidentally, I hope the professor has learned his lesson. Lesson? Yes, for inventing this little fraud. Fraud?
6: Why, why, this is
1: magic. Magic. Jimmy, you are going to tell me you actually believe in magic.
7: Oh, what's the difference? I'm so glad to see you. I won't even ask how you got here.
6: But golly, Superman hasn't seen it work. Anybody that's worn this necklace, nothing can hurt him. Ow! You kicked me on the shin! Oh, it hurts. What did you say? It hurts! Huh? I mean, that dynamite.
5: We could have been...
3: <sighs> <laughs> like many color episodes, you're not going to see me complain about this one too much, but it's not a great episode. It's an episode that I probably enjoy more for nostalgia than anything else. It was on one of those thanksgiving superman festivals that i have talked about over the course of my coverage of this particular show and for that reason at all i know this episode very well because i've been watching it since i was a kid i really can't say the same about many of the other episodes of the series the ones that stick out the most in my mind are the ones that i had on video way back when and remember a lot better so we start at the metropolis museum as three people are busting into a crate from the jody expedition they're looking for an Obviously, the magic necklace that I talked about in the synopsis, and Jake Morell, the head criminal here in the middle, is going to test the power of the necklace by poisoning each member of his gang. So At first, we we're not really sure what Morel's stake is in this. The first member of the gang to get the poison is Clicker. He uh, falls to the ground and makes some clicking sounds as he does so. I'm guessing that's pretty much how he got his nickname. I wonder how his opposite number, Lazy, got his nickname, but... I did notice throughout the course of this episode that Clicker had this kind of annoying click when he would talk. I wonder if that was something that was written into the role or if that's just kind of a tick that the actor has. I don't know. Now, I understand their skepticism about this method of testing the necklace. I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to drink poison just to test out whether a necklace is magic or not, but that's just me. And obviously, they know that the Taiwan necklace, if it arrives at the museum, Is going to be from the Jody expedition because, well, the Daily Planet has been constantly kind enough to print all that information in the newspaper. Because, of course it did. Now, I like Jenks' performance here. He's playing lazy as the poison starts to affect him. You know, he kind of gets all wide-eyed and his speech speeds up and he starts to act delirious as Lois and Jimmy show up. You know, it's really a testament to Frank Jenks' performance here that even though when I first put this episode in, the actor looked familiar... You know, it's not like when Richard Reeves or Ben Weldon show up that it's Richard Reeves and Ben Weldon playing criminals. Shanks had such a memorable role in the stolen costume as Candy Myers that I was almost surprised when I looked up his IMDb and saw that he was Candy Myers because I saw very little of Candy Myers in this particular performance. When you see some of the other actors who have played multiple roles on this series they're basically playing the same character with different names. Yeah. So, you know, I really like that Jenks is a good enough character actor that, even though I recognize, eventually, that he is the same man, very little Candy Meyer showing up in this. Which, I, like I said, I liked. Lois and Jimmy show up, and she wants a story from the Night Watchman as there is a suspicion that the packages were broken into. And obviously, we know that's happening, as we see Morell and his people breaking into the packages. But they're clearly not taking anything that they don't want, so... I'm guessing Morell is not going to risk a robbery charge or burglary charge if he's not going to find what he wants. I find it interesting that Lois has written all of her stories from Professor Jody's letters. She has never actually spoken to the man himself, just read his letters. I would think for a story that they'd want to, in a paper the size of the Daily Planet, she'd want to do more than quotes of handwritten letters. You would think she'd actually want to see if she could get Jody at least on the telephone, but I guess not. Lois and Jimmy find an open door to a closed museum, you know. And I can think of so many reasons not to go into this museum, but Lois is pretty determined. And Jimmy, normally the gullible one, regurgitates something Clark had told him about the silliness of a magic necklace. However, Lois and Jimmy are going to run into some trouble, and Lois recognizes Jake Morell, and Lois puts it together that uh, they're the ones who've been breaking into the packages. And then she kind of helps Morell out by telling him that Professor Jody hasn't sent the actual Taiwan necklace yet. It's kind of even money whether or not he's actually going to ever send the Taiwan necklace to the museum. That's kind of his golden goose. Morel wants the necklace because, like we saw before, he wants the invincibility that's going to come with it. So, Jimmy and Lois are going with Morel because they need to be there. So, apparently now we advance to the next morning and the first appearance of Perry is us looking at Clark doing some work and hearing Perry screaming from outside the office. Apparently, the workday has begun and no one other than Clark is around, so he storms into Clark's office to tell him the museum was robbed, and Clark asks the obvious question about the police report, which is, as a journalist, what you would do in that situation, you would contact the police, get the report, or get a comment from the chief or the lieutenant, whoever's heading up the investigation, and kind of go from there, but apparently nobody has, and right at that moment, Clark gets a call from the airport that Lois's wallet was found on the runway. And we find out when Clark goes to claim the wallet that the only plane that uses this particular runway was a private jet that was going to Africa. At least initially from Metropolis. When we get back to the Daily Planet office, we find out that Morell owns the plane, thanks to Inspector Henderson. And this is where Clark puts the pieces together, suggesting that a plane that stopped in both Africa and Pakistan could be on its way to the Jody expedition in Tibet. So, Perry sends Clark, who suggests that it's a job for Superman. I like how Perry says there's no time to waste trying to find Superman. I don't know much about how long it would take to get from Metropolis, presumably on the east coast of the United States, to Tibet by commercial plane. I would think it would take at least more than half the day to do so. How long does it take to find Superman and send him on his way? You would think it would take a little bit less than that, and Superman can make up the dis- the difference in time very quickly. But, <laughs> Perry, instead, is going to find Superman, and I love Clark's tone of voice as he humors him, you know, with the, sure, Chief. You know, we know that Perry can't do it, and we're in on the joke with Clark, who goes to the storeroom, changes, and then the camera takes us back to Perry, who breaks the fourth wall for one of the rare times in the series. You know, Clark would, especially in season one, break the first wall quite a bit with his wing to the camera at the end of the of the episode. They don't do that as much at this point in the series, but... Here, like once in a while, you're going to see a character kind of break the fourth wall, and like Perry does here when he asks, where would he look for Superman if he really did want him? We're going to see in The Wedding of Superman that Lois is going to start the episode by talking directly to us, the viewer. And just like Clark was with the short chief joke, Perry is talking right to us. You know, and of course, we know the answer, we can't give it to him, but you know, I like that he's talking to us. So here is uh, Professor Jody. He is Basically looking for attention because he has been an unnoticed and poor archaeologist. And he's showing an Indian reporter what he believes to be the real Taiwan necklace. This is when Jody's assistant Afbar shows up and is warning the professor of a plane. And then they hear Superman who lands outside of this cabin here that I guess is on the archaeological dig site. And he hides and runs off. So Clark shows up and the assistant holds a knife on him while the Indian man is laughing. It's like, this cabin is out of control. And Clark doesn't believe in the necklace either, and Jody wants a demonstration. He puts on the necklace, and he asks AFBAR to shoot him. And he sets a shouting match between AFBAR, Clark, and the newsman, and they're all yelling over each other because nobody wants to risk anyone's life to prove whether this magic necklace is real or not. I don't think it's worth risking a life over it, but obviously Professor Jody feels otherwise. So instead, they're going, this argument ends up with Clark wearing the necklace, and He's the one who's going to get knifed instead, but Morell interrupts them, coming in with Lois and Jimmy, but in the commotion, a gun falls off the table, shoots Clark, the bullet allegedly bounces off of him, and the Indian newsman is convinced of the necklace's power. And he kind of does his own little fourth wall breaking, kind of telling us that the magic necklace is true. The legend of the necklace is true. I'm not sure anybody who was actually in that situation at that time would stand there saying, It's true. It's true. But I think he's doing that for us to put over the fact that he now believes in the necklace's power. But, you know, right when we come back from what I'm pretty sure was probably a commercial break in 1955, we see Afbar and Jody discussing that the necklace is not real, but it plays right into Jody's hands. So, we can tell right here that, and obviously we probably figured from the beginning, because Clark did, that Jody is trying to perform some kind of con, and This is the moment where it's clear that AFBAR is in on it. Probably wants to do something about the poor archaeologist he talked about being in a previous scene. Though Clark is trying to talk his way out of the bullet bouncing off of him, now my question is, does the bullet actually hit him? And we're going to see later that the knife is breakable and the bullets are not real, so I'm not sure this gun was loaded anyway, even though... The conversation between Afbar and Jody kind of indicates that it might be because Jody is suggesting that Clark was saved by something, a coin in his pocket or something like that, and that doesn't really allow for knowledge of blanks in the gun, does it? So Clicker comes out and says that he either the necklace is magic or Clark is Superman, and Jody challenges Clark to say that he's Superman, but. Of course, Clark is going to deny that too, so there is really no other good explanation for how Clark survives getting shot here. And there's also really no good explanation as to show how Clark got to Tibet before Lois and Jimmy did. Clark wants to escape with Lois and Jimmy, and Lois, of course, doesn't want to go, and why would she? She's been answering this story the whole episode. Now that she's here in Tibet with Professor Jody, she may as well see the thing through. And based on what happened to Clark, she's starting to believe in the necklace's magic, even though this is the same character who's been endlessly trying to prove Clark Kent is Superman. I'm not sure why she would suddenly lend some credence in a na- into a magic necklace. You would think at this point she would say, oh, he is Superman. So that's just a minor nitpick. The next story decides to show off the, the tomb and tell a story about how he found the necklace. And as they're hanging around Taiwan's tomb, a swinging sword falls to the ceiling and ancient booby trap. Clark gets everyone ex- out of the way, but Jody is showing that Jody is taking his con to the extreme. But we find out that Morell is willing to pay a million dollars for the necklace. Clark thinks it's worthless, but Lois saw it work on him, and when she says that, Clark just smiles. You know, again, we're in on the joke, but Lois is not. We know Clark has figured all of this out. I mean, obviously we know that Clark is Superman, it wouldn't have been hurt by the bullet anyway, but... I think Clark knew that there was a blank in the gun. I'm not sure why he didn't try to use that as his explanation in the previous scene, but he doesn't. So, obviously, before he pays, Morell wants proof that it works. I don't blame him. Why spend a million dollars on a magic necklace if you're not going to get any proof that it works? And that's when Jody asks Afbar to stab him, while Clark slinks away and decides not to change into Superman. So, the knife bends on Jody's body, and I'm pretty sure Clark knows the knife is fake. And then Afbar empties a gun on Jody, who stands tall. He is not hurt. And after all this, Moreau excitedly hands over the money and gets the necklace. And then he pulls the old criminal double cross. With the necklace in hand, he kind of clubs both Jody and Afbar, leaving them to die in the tomb. I guess you're going to leave someone to die. The tomb is not the worst place in the world. So this has Lois convinced, but we know from his own facial expression and the way he's acting, letting the scenario play out, that Clark really knows what's going on here. So eventually, Morell takes back his money and knocks out Jody and bar, And as Clark is being dragged out of the cave, he pushes one of the henchmen and causes a cave-in to seal Jody and himself into the cave. So this is where we learn why Jody has done what he's done, and it's as I suspected. He needs the money for his research, or whatever it is he's trying to do. So he establishes an elaborate con to hook someone to bind the necklace. And Clark gives them a little speech that, despite Jody's good intentions, which, like I said, is to advance scientists, the magic is within him and not the necklace. You can tell by Clark's tone, this is a lesson to the kids at home. telling them to believe in themselves and that the magic to accomplish great things lies within them. He's not really saying much specifically to Jody. At least I don't think. So Jody admits that he did wrong and he's pretty repentant and he's sorry that Clark is stuck in the sealed tomb with him and Afbar. So, he's not a bad man, just someone who was desperate enough, and down on his luck enough, and so no other way out but to trick someone into paying him a large sum of money for a fake artifacts. So, before he changes the Superman Clark trips over a torch, putting out the lights and escapes. Meanwhile, Morell is planning to get rid of Lowe's and Jimmy, and this is the point when I realized that I have no idea where the Indian news reporter is, so I went back a little bit, and he never came down into the tomb with the rest of them, so... I guess that actor's contract only brought him to the to the counter and not the full table. So Morel, though, must still believe in the necklace at this point because he's hanging around with it in front of a stick of dynamite because he has it. And this is when Superman shows up plowing through a wall and Clicker and Lazy unload their guns on him. And I love this shot of Superman just kind of choking out Clicker and Lazy. Jimmy can't get to the dynamite. And since he has the necklace, which he's wrestled away from Morel, he believes they're safe. And this is when Lois is previous belief in the necklace just vanishes. And she now believes it's phony and starts calling for Superman, who takes out Morel with a nice judo chop. I love how Lois was all about the necklace's authenticity when it was somebody else who was in danger, but now that it's her, she chooses to put her faith in Superman, and she is rewarded as Superman takes care of the dynamite at the last minute by throwing it through the roof. And then we come to one of my favorite endings of the series. It's just its so much fun. As Jimmy tells Superman they didn't need his help because they had the necklace, Superman will convince Jimmy otherwise. And I love the nod. Superman gives permission to Lois to kick Jimmy in the shins, causing him to complain how much it hurts. And as there's some encouragement from Superman, Jimmy realizes that the dynamite could have killed him, and he faints. And I believe that calls back to, I want to say, the human bomb. When Jimmy realized the dynamite from Better Million Butler could have been real, because the dynamite factory could have come from outside the city. So, I love this laugh, as Superman and Lois catch the fainted Jimmy. It's not as good as George Reeves' laugh from Time Barrier, but it's close. So, like I said, this was a fun episode. Not that great, not that bad. Uh, you know, kind of a sea effort. So, right now I'm going to take a quick break and play a promo. And then I'm going to come back with, with the bully of Dry Gulch. Hang around, folks. <laughs>
1: Carl, well, you have traveled far. One, One journey
2: is ended. ended. A new journey, journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every eighth Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at Magnus talks about Smallville every 8th Tuesday only at com.
3: Welcome back folks. We're gonna head right into The Bully of Dry Gulch. Original broadcast date was September twenty fourth, nineteen fifty five. Writer was David Chandler, and director was George Blair. Guest guests include Myron Healy as Gunnar Flinch, Martin Garolaga as Pedro, Raymond Hatton as Sagebrush, and Eddie Baker as the saloon owner. Now for our synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com your number one source for Superman information on the web. On the way to cover a rodeo for the Daily Planet, the car used by reporters Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen broke down. They find themselves in the western town of Dry Gulch, where Gunner Finch uses his six guns to show everyone who's boss. Neither Lois nor Jimmy like his bullying pour sagebrush into dancing while bullets are fired at the old man's feet.
8: Put some life into it.
9: I'm doing all right, but the bullets is bouncing off my corn. (laughs) It's very funny. Bullets are stepping on his corn.
8: What's funny?
9: Nothing. He's very sad altogether. I don't think it's very
6: funny either. What did you say, stranger? Did I say something?
7: He said it's not very funny, and I agree with him.
8: Ma'am, the code of the West don't allow me to go around shooting up pretty gals like you. But a real healthy male critter like this. I think I
6: just lost my health.
7: You can't do that to him.
6: That's right, you can't. Next time, it's going to be uh, head. On the other hand, uh, what's done is
8: done, I always say. Yeah, that's more like it. Ma'am, allow me to introduce myself. My name's Gunner French, fastest gunman in the West. When's the next train for the East?
7: I'm Lois Lane, and this is Jimmy Olson. We're on our way to cover the annual rodeo at Big Springs, and our car broke down. Until it's fixed tomorrow, you're not going to get rid of us.
8: Well, ma'am, I don't really aim to get rid of you the dude here, he's different. I don't rightly cotton to his attitude. Stranger, you got until sundown to get out of town.
6: Who are you calling that dude? And who are you telling to get out of town? You. Have you got anything to back them words up, mister?
8: Just these here two guns, and I got 10 notches on each one of them.
6: Well, I guess that answers my question.
7: Come on, Jim. I don't like the atmosphere around here. Well,
8: I'll just ignore that kind of a remark, ma'am, and say it's been real nice meeting you. And dude? Don't forget, out of town by sunset.
6: Look, I'll go when I'm good and ready. But I think I'll be ready by then.
8: And you get any idea that I'm not top gun in these parts? Just ask somebody on Boot Hill. Huh? Boot Hill? Yeah, but you won't be getting no answers. You see, Boot Hill is the town cemetery. Jimmy buys cowboy clothes and wishes to get a meal
3: with Lois. Meanwhile, Gunner has paid Sagebrush and Pedro in the saloon.
8: Here you are boys. Almost forgot. Hey there! Oh, hooray, huh, Mm Bud? I'm feeling real generous. Oh, thanks, boss. (laughs) That's okay. I'm feeling good. Been out practicing, got myself five squirrels right between the wings. You mean between the eyes? No, no, between the wings. (laughs) These here was flying squirrels. Which one of you boys feels like a little gamble?
9: Uh, can't you? We just look at it for a while, no, boss? Uh, sure.
8: Sure, as long as you don't feel like gambling. Of course, you, you don't have to play.
9: Oh, we'd rather gamble with you, boss, than eat, wouldn't we, Pedro? Uh, see, see, Especially when if we do not gamble,
8: we do not have to worry about not eating. That's just what I wanted to hear. Come on, what are we waiting for? You know, this is what I look forward to, once a week, just like clockwork. Bet them high. Make a pile. Well, I I bet that all. Mm-hmm. Me, too. There we go. Pick them up, read them, and we, boys. Uh Uh-oh. Don't even bother to read them hate to tell you this, boys, but i got five bullets. Five little aces. In Mexico, a man would be
9: killed for having five aces.
8: What did you say, Pedro?
9: Uh, I said, uh, in Mexico, a man would be thrilled to have five aces. Uh,
8: thrilled, huh? <laughs> That's what I thought you said. But just to be sure there's no misunderstanding, everything's clear. You boys don't think you've been cheated, do you? I think you were cheated. Well, now, look at the dude. <laughs> yeah, I'm mighty glad to see you went and bought them fancy duds. Do you like them? Sure do. Hate to see a man die unless he's properly outfitted.
7: You leave him alone.
8: My, my, man, you're sure excitable. Yeah, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's too early in the day for killing. Pedro, get him out of here. I want something to look forward to at sundown. You come with me, no?
6: I come with you, yes. On
7: Jimmy! Ah, oh, man. What are you going to do with him?
8: Oh, well, you got nothing to worry about, man. Leastwise, not yet. <laughs> why don't you and me sort of talk this over?
3: No! Jimmy blinds Pedro by wrapping the Mexican's fabric around his face. Gunner is not happy about this. He locks Jimmy away in a prison cell of the sheriff's office, where he must wait for the inevitable showdown with Flinch.
8: You want anything done, you gotta do it yourself, I always say. Move, stranger. Help! Let me out of Get it. lost, stupid! Yes, sir! Glad Got you! I met Pedro. Now you turn around and walk up the street. What are you stopping for, dude? Go in there, huh?
6: No, thanks. There's a, there's something about jails that I don't like.
8: Now, ain't that a shame. Inside.
6: Come
8: on. Well, now, look at that. Somebody's gone and left the cell door open. Why don't you close it, dude?
6: That's a funny way to run a jail.
8: Go on. Lois
6: contacts Clark Kent.
7: Please, operator, try and get that call through. Yes? Call me back as soon as possible.
9: I thought you would like to know the young man is in jail.
7: In jail? What did he do?
9: What did any of us do? With Gunner, it does not matter.
7: Pedro, why do you and Sagebrush put up with that conceited bully?
9: If we do not put up with him, he gets very mad. And when he
1: gets very mad... mm. Hello?
7: Yes? Yes, put him on.
1: Hello, Lois. You sound excited. What's the matter?
7: Clark, we're in trouble. Jimmy's in jail and he's going to be shot at sundown.
1: Lois, I'm very busy. If you want to play jokes, try someone else.
7: I'm not joking. Our car broke down and we're stuck in a place called Dry Gulch. I know it sounds crazy, but there's a gunslinger in town who thinks he's Jesse James or somebody. And he's gunning for Jimmy.
1: Tell him to go on a diet. he will be harder to hit.
7: This is no joking matter. Besides putting Jimmy in jail, this... This character's been making goo-goo eyes at me.
1: He's been doing what? That's different, I'll be right out.
3: Ask Superman, he breaks Jimmy out of jail.
6: Yeah, I'll be a side-winding gopher. Whatever that is. Well, Jimmy, now you can get out of here. Why, oh, Jeepers, thanks, Superman. How did you get here? Same way I get everywhere. No, I don't mean that. How did you know I was in jail? Oh, I happened to overhear a conversation between Miss Lane and Mr. Kent. Mr. Kent, is he coming out here?
1: Yes, as a matter of fact, I expect him any minute now.
6: Jeepers, with both you and Mr. Kent here, I don't have anything to worry about. Well, now, Jimmy, I can't stay. Incidentally, I want you to keep this a secret between you and me. Whatever you say, Superman. Thanks,
1: Jimmy. I'll see you.
3: Jimmy is currently waiting in his hotel room to speak with Clark.
1: Clark! Hello, Lois.
7: How in the world did you get here so fast?
1: I flew. Where's Jimmy?
7: You'll never believe this, but somehow he broke out of jail. He's up in his room now, waiting for you.
1: Oh, well, let him stay there for a while. First, I want to have a look at this fellow who's making the goo-goo eyes at you.
7: Well, he's probably over in the cafe. But please be careful, Clark. After all, you're not Superman.
1: Oh. Well, I guess those are just chances I'll have to take, Lois. Let's go.
7: Clark, this is Gunner Flinch. Mr. Flinch, Mr. Kent, he's also a reporter on the planet.
1: Well, howdy, Mr. Kent. I've heard about you. Welcome to Dragons. I've heard about you, too, Gunner. In fact, I'd like to have a little talk with you. Can I buy you a soda? Well, well uh, I got a better idea, Mr. Kent. Uh, why don't we sit
8: down and play a little poker just to be sociable? Oh, I'm sorry, Gunner. I don't gamble. Mr. Kent, according to the Code of the West, and the man asks you to drink with him or gamble, you better drink and gamble. Fine, I'll drink. Soda. I said gamble. Let me tell you something. When a man declines my invitation, I go loco. See, Plum loco. Something snaps inside of me, I lose control. In fact, in fact, I feel it coming on right now, and there's nothing I can do to stop it.
7: You better do what he says, Clark, even if the cards are marked.
1: Mark? There's not much I can do about that. That. You see what I mean? Yes, I do, Gunner. I've changed my mind. I'll gamble with you. Well, that's better.
7: Wait a minute. What kind of guns do you carry?
1: These, ma'am? These here are six guns.
7: I was counting. You shot one of them seven times.
8: Oh, well, uh, ma'am, sometimes I shoot so fast, even my guns can't keep up with me. That's a killer. To calm Gunner down, Clark greased Gamble.
3: As the game begins, Clark lights Gunner's cigarettes with a match. And Flinch's marked deck bursts into flame shortly afterwards. Clark buys a new one before the stakes are raised. Clark's superhumanly
8: fast deal impresses Gunner. It's a mighty fancy deal, Mr. Kent. Nothing.
1: Nothing at all.
6: All right, Gunner, how many
1: cards?
8: I'm standing pat. Well, so am I. You beat five aces? Five.
9: Well, it ain't more than four in the whole blame pack. That is not what you said this morning when you had the five races.
8: Yes. Yeah, but that, that... Well, <laughs> I... Uh... <laughs> looks like you win, Mr. Kent. Yes, looks
1: like. Well, thanks for the lesson. Here you are, sir. I hope that'll cover part of the damage. Thank you very much, sir. My pleasure. Ah, ah. Shall we, Lois?
7: Gladly. But how in the world did you beat him so easily?
1: Well, maybe I have a few tricks of my own. Oh, Gunner, could I have my hat, please? Thank you. Uh, let me know if you find more than five aces, will you?
3: Gunner has just left the saloon. As Lois and Clark meet with Jimmy, Flinch is curious about how the cup reporter got out of prison. But he's more intent on putting a bullet in the young man. Pedro stands up to Gunner only to end up on Boot Hill Cemetery of the West. Gunner has two notches carved into the handles of his guns, and he has placed two more on them—one is for Pedro, and the other for Jimmy. Sagebrush has dragged Pedro to Boot Hill. Pedro then gets up to speak with him. Okay, Pedro, you can get up now.
9: Uh, I am getting sick of this. You're sick. Gunner's killed me three times already. He's one big show-me-off. He pretends to kill us. So he looked like big men. The way he pretends to kill all the others. Well, maybe he actually hadn't killed nobody. But if he heard you talking like you are now,
6: he just might. You better skedaddle. You can't blame
7: yourself, Jim.
6: Just the same, if it weren't for me, Pedro would still be alive. Mr. Kent, sometimes I think it's better to run away from bullies. Well, sometimes it is, Jim, but there's nothing you can do about it now. Well, at least I can go up to Boot Hill and pay my respects.
7: That's a good idea. We'll all go.
6: Son, is this Boot Hill?
9: Yes, it is, son. I ain't much on this poetry, but this is the best I can do.
6: Here lies Pedro at last. He drew his gun once too often. Now he lies in his coffin as he drew, but he didn't draw fast. (laughs) The poet laureate of Dry Gulch. Here lies Cactus Bill. Gunner got him. Mesquite John, you they wanted to lynch till you ran into Gunner Flinch. Here lies Olson the dude. To Gunner, he was very rude. Here lies, did
7: I say Olson? Gunner must really mean business, Clark. Oh, I don't know. I
6: don't like the business he's in. It's too bad the gunner's spoiling things. We could certainly enjoy this scenery.
3: Clark sees Pedro hiding behind some rocks with his X-ray vision, and he decides to meet with him as Superman.
9: Uh, At last it happened. I've lost my mind, no? No, Pedro, you haven't lost your mind or your life either, apparently. Many times I hear of Superman,
1: but I do not think I will ever meet him. Well, you've met him now. And I'd like to help you, Pedro. How would you like to help me teach the gunner a lesson he'll never forget? I would like that very much. But no, no, thank you. I am also fond of living. Well, don't you worry. I have an idea. And I think we can get Clark Kent to help us, too. Now come on over here and sit down, and I'll tell you all about it.
3: Pedro challenges Gunner to a showdown.
1: I can't believe it, boss. Pedro can't be that
8: stupid. Can he? Sure asking for it. What are you waiting for? Why are you in I'm aiming to give you a first shot. Otherwise, against a dangerous gunman like me, you wouldn't stand a chance. Gone.
9: Get it over with. Shut!
8: I just can't do it, Pedro. I can't bring myself to kill you.
2: Why
9: not? Already this year, you killed me 10 times.
8: Yeah, but that, that, that wasn't for real. I can't really kill you, Pedro. You've been my buddy for too long. <laughs>
1: Superman. That's right, Gunner. I had a feeling your bark was worse than your bite. So I paid you a little visit this afternoon while you were taking your siesta. You paid me a visit? Yes, and you were snoring so peacefully I didn't have the heart to disturb you. So I just removed the slugs from your shells. Slugs? You mean I got nothing in my
8: guns but blanks? Well, that little varmint could have killed me.
9: Boss! Why you do not tell the people all those graves on Boot
8: Hill are phony? Yeah. Yeah, they're phony, all right, just like the notches on the guns. I ain't never really killed nobody in my whole life. Me too,
9: but I think maybe now... <laughs> What
8: are you doing, Pedro? What's the idea
9: of shooting my feet? I think maybe I'd like to see you then, boss.
6: What was it you said about sundown, partner? I said sundown's mighty pretty in these parts. If
8: you don't figure on being out of town by that time, I do. Come on, boys. Wait a minute, boss. Huh? You forgot something. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right, boys. Let's moves
7: <laughs> That's the way it is with most bullies, I guess. Inside, they're just scared.
6: Yeah, just the same. He had me pretty scared for a while. Well, all the shooting over?
7: Oh, yes, Mr. Candy. it's quite quiet now. Hey, by the way, where's Superman?
6: Yeah, golly, he was just here a minute ago.
7: It's a funny thing. When you're around, Superman never is.
6: Yes, it is funny, but maybe he
3: doesn't like me. Well, Clark, I must say, I've never known Superman to not like anyone. So, I don't think that line of logic is going to work for you. Just a quick note before we get into our analysis of this episode. This episode was based on the Jimmy Olsen comic story, The Bully of Dry Gulch. in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number three of January 1955. And this same issue has also inspired the earlier episode that I covered last week, Olsen's Millions. We begin with Lois and Jimmy in their city clothes showing up at the... At the old west town. And as soon as Jimmy asks Lois if she expected desperado shooting up the place. We hear gunshots and a man shooting at another man's feet. Making him dance to avoid the bullets. And the Mexican man laughs at a joke of the old man dancing. And this, and we discover that this white guy making the older man dance must be the bully. Lois and Jimmy are, are the, one of the few people standing up to him. Who we learn his name is Gunner Flinch. And he takes a kind of a few pot shots at Jimmy, and Jimmy is showing a lot of guts standing up to a guy with two guns, as Gunner now announces he wants Jimmy out of town by sunset, despite the fact that their car broke down. I'm not exactly sure where they're getting their car repaired in this old west town, but I guess that's not something we have to worry about. All we know is that their car won't be ready until tomorrow. Dry Gulch basically looks like it was plucked right out of the 19th century. All wooden buildings... At first, you don't see any cars in the background, but you do later, and when you see them, they look very out of place. Almost like it's a reminder that it's not the Old West and that we are still in the middle of the 50s. It's just weird to me that this, I don't know what 1955 was like, obviously I wasn't born yet, but just to have an Old West town kind of, still kind of caught in that time zone seems rather odd. I'm not sure if anybody else can elaborate on this, but it definitely looks as though It has not yet caught up to the 1950s. Let's just leave it at that and move on. So Jimmy goes into a clothing store and he knows what he's doing because he's seen enough Western movies. Great line of logic there, Jimmy. I'm guessing that also means I can fly because I've watched a lot of Superman in my day. One of the many problems with this particular episode. So here is Jimmy in a Western costume and Lois is asking him what he's doing while she's dressed in her own Old West outfit. Now how exactly can Lois judge Jimmy for wearing an Old West outfit when she's doing the exact same thing? a hole in the episode's logic this, so far this episode is kind of battling it out with Testable warrior for one of my least favorite episodes of this season and maybe the series as a whole i don't know so here is gunner paying his two men apparently they're in some kind of gang together or group and he's the boss and he's paying them so i guess what we saw in the street earlier in the day was just a performance and uh, we're gonna get some more confirmation on that later in the episode so what is the first thing that gunner has his two men do as soon as they get their pay, they have them gamble with him. And obviously the game is rigged in his favor. Rigged poker game right here. To go with Test of a Warriors, rigged election. I'm guessing he's going to either win their money or shoot them. But he's got five aces. Too bad there are only four on a deck. And I love how Pedro says, A man would be killed in Mexico for having five aces. And Gunner just gets mad. And Pedro changes the word killed to thrilled. One of the many clues in this episode that Pedro and Sagebush, or Sagebrush are afraid of Gunner. Immediately after Lois tells Jimmy not to start anything, Jimmy starts something. And he says he agrees that Stagebrush and uh, Pedro have been cheated by Gunner. And Gunner doesn't take too kindly for this. It escalates into an argument. And as Pedro takes Jimmy away, Gunner starts cozying up to Lois, who isn't having any of it. as she kind of just steps on his foot and runs out to see what's going on out front. And as Jimmy and Pedro walk out of the saloon, we get some nice physical comedy from both the actor who plays Pedro and Jack Larson. As we see a few cars in the background reminding us that this is 1955, Jimmy will get the better of Pedro here by basically wrapping him up in his scarf and kicking him into the street. Which is kind of something that you would expect to happen to Jimmy, so it's nice seeing him turn the tables on somebody else. And then a gun goes off by his foot. At first I thought maybe somehow Jimmy had a gun and almost blew his own toes off. But, nope, it was Gunner kind of shooting at him from the entrance of the saloon. But Gunner tells Pedro to get lost, and Jimmy takes him up on it. You know, we see that quite a bit, too, when Jimmy knows he's in trouble and someone tells somebody to go away. Jimmy uh, offers to do so himself. He did it memorably in Jimmy Olsen Boy Editor when Perry White brought the coffee to Jimmy and Lois in the office while he was being held hostage by Legs Leamy. Le- 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 When Perry was chased away, Jimmy tried to go with him very nonchalantly. Nothing nonchalant about this. He just kind of takes off and runs, but Gunner doesn't have any of it. So, Gunner still wants Jimmy out of town by sundown, but he is putting Jimmy in the jail cell. It's going to be a little hard for Jimmy to leave by sundown if he's locked in jail, which I guess is kind of the point. The loss, meanwhile, is on a phone that looks about as out of place in this town as the cars, and while she's waiting for the operator to either connect her with Clark or for Clark to call back... She t- has a brief conversation with Pedro, who, and she asks why they put up with Gunner and his bullying, and he basically says he's afraid of him. You know, they're afraid that if Gunner gets, they don't do what Gunner wants, Gunner's gonna get mad and probably shoot one of them. Which is not something either one of them look for, are looking forward to. I wouldn't be either. So after this first uh, discussion about bullying, there'll be a few others throughout the course of the episode. That's when the call comes back, and, you know, Clark isn't taking Lois' concerns very seriously, at first. I mean, Jimmy is supposed to be his friend. And he couldn't care less about the fact that Jimmy is about to get shot by this gunslinger. Telling Jimmy to lose weight to become a smaller target. I mean, really? Clark, someone you trust is telling you that your friend might be in mortal danger and you're going to sit there and make jokes? Really? And then Lois mentions that Gunner is making goo eyes at her. And that's what gets him changing into Superman. Not that Jimmy's life is in danger, but because some, some strange dude is checking out Lois. Really? What's the priority here? Clark, I mean, if someone's telling you Jimmy's in trouble, that should be enough. Not to just sit there and make jokes until... somebody starts hitting on Lois and then act. Uh, David Chandler, you've written enough episodes at this point that you should know better than this. I mean, this story comes from a book called Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen. Does Superman even care that much about his pal here? I mean, this entire scene just threw me for a loop. But... You know, thank God he's on his way. He's on his way because, no you know, Gunner is making good eyes at Lois, so. Superman's on his way and arrives quickly, and then we're kind of going to another scene that I don't really understand. Aside from the fact that Superman doesn't understand Jimmy the Old West reference, which is annoying and irrelevant at the same time. Why can't Superman stay? Why is he keeping his presence a secret? This situation can be dealt with in ten seconds flat if Superman just stays to deal with the problem. Makes no sense to me, but... We still have most of this episode to go, so I'm guessing that's why. Now, after all this, Jimmy decides to try the cell door before going through the hole in the wall made by Superman. At this point, folks, I kinda looked at the timer on the DVD, and I was almost appalled by the fact that I still had about 14-15 minutes left to go. I was checking out of this episode by this point. This is one of those episodes that I wasn't really looking forward to when I saw it on the, bo- that it was coming up, and now I remember why. <sighs> so, for the, Literally, second straight episode, Clark has no explanation for how he got somewhere so fast, or how Jimmy got out of jail, and I really don't understand why he became Clark at all in this situation. Superman could have handled this episode very quickly. But, so now here comes Clark meeting Gunner, who's putting on a friendly exterior until Clark won't gamble with him, and he's trying to intimidate Clark, and then he shoots up the place to show what a big man he is, for no apparent reason, and apparently Lois points out that Gunner fired seven shots from his six-shooter gun, and... His excuse is that he shoots so fast that the guns can't keep up with him, okay? I'm pretty sure by this point that David Chandler is long dead, but I can only wonder what he was smoking when he wrote this episode. Now Clark and Gunner are going to gamble, and the cards suddenly catch fire, which Clark is done with. At this time, the heat of his X-ray vision, term heat vision, as we've discussed on many occasions, has not been invented yet by DC Comics. But that was a nice effect to explosive sound when the cards caught fire. You know, I jumped a little bit because I had forgotten a lot of this episode and didn't remember that. So I jumped a little bit when the cards exploded. So Clark buys a fresh and unmarked deck and Lois comments on how it exploded out of nowhere. This gives us a chance for a more bad humor. Clark, that
7: deck just seemed to explode in flames.
3: Well, maybe it was a hot deck. He and us are both in on the joke. So as good as open is this deck of cards, I'm noticing that the card box hasn't changed much in the last 62 years, has it? I think I could go to the store and buy a deck of cards right now with that design on the box. There's a nice shot of Clark shuffling at super speed, which I could shuffle like that. And when I say like that, I mean at all. For me, whenever I have to shuffle of deck of, a deck of cards, it seems to become more of a game of 52 pickup. Gunner is going to bet the two bags of gold that he won off Pedro and Sagebrush against the wad of cash that Clark is pulling out of his pocket. Not sure where he got all that, but he has it. I wish I had a wad of cash in my pocket. But these days, being a journalist, does not put a wad of cash in your pocket. Apparently in 1955, they put a wad of cash in Clark's pocket. Or maybe something else did. Who knows? With the way he's acting this episode, I can believe Superman is capable of anything. So... Look at how fast Clark is dealing. Obviously, this is all done by speeding up the film and the camera. Probably cut out a few frames to give the illusion that George Reeves is moving as a lot faster than the rest of them. So this time, Clark has the five aces, and I love how Gunnar objects and Pedro calls him out on it. Clark gets not only his cash back, but the bags of gold, and Gunnar is left looking miserable. I guess if you're playing with wild cards, you can get five aces, but... The show is implying that there actually are five aces in the deck of cards. I saw Clark put a few cards to the side when he took them out of the box. I assume those were the Jokers and that little instructional card you get with your deck. More trouble with Gunner and Jimmy, and Pedro makes a move to protect Jimmy, but Gunner shoots his buddy down, and... You know, at this point, I'm starting to see through Gunner's act a little bit, and I'm wondering if Pedro is actually dead. Because all of this seems very neat and tidy. And it turned out I was right as Pedro gets up at the cemetery as... Apparently, uh sagebrush has been killed three times and... This is the first time that we seem to learn that perhaps Gunner hasn't killed anyone. As many of the graves are phony. However, Jimmy, who went with Lois and Clark to pay their respects to Pedro... Is quite spooked by the cemetery. Especially when he finds his own grave. I'm betting if I was walking to the cemetery and found my own grave, I'd be pretty spooked too. Clark, meanwhile, sees Pedro in the woods... Runs off of changes in Superman, so I guess it's okay for the locals to see Superman now, now that Jimmy has a tombstone. Superman sees Pedro, who claims he's lost his mind. Pedro, like the Mindkeeper keeper in Clark Kent Outlaw, commented how he's heard of Superman, but never thought he would get a chance to meet him. So a nice little uh, note there. Superman offers Pedro a chance to help teach Gunner a lesson. Pedro, at first, is hesitant to trust even Superman. You know, he's that scared of Gunner that... Despite the suspicion that he never actually killed anyone. I guess he's figuring it the first time, and he doesn't want to be the first person that Gunnar actually kills with a bullet. Pedro shows back up in Dry Gulch, and he basically challenges Gunnar to actually kill him. But like most bullies, we're going to find out that Gunnar's bark is bigger than his bite. And you can see it in his facial expressions. He's trying to bring himself to do it, trying to work up a good man, but, you know, he can't do it. And the ruse is exposed, and he can't do it because, you know what? Pedro has been his buddy for a long time, so... And this is where they expose the ruse, and we learn that the Boot Hill Graves are phony. At least we learn officially. We probably figured that out in the previous scene at the cemetery. Superman informs us that he removed the slugs from Gunner's guns while he was sleeping, and left them with blanks, and after everything is said and done, Pedro shoots at Gunner's feet and making him dance, just like he did the sagebrush earlier in the episode, so I guess there's some poetic justice there. Now, after some preaching about how bullies are cowards, the episode ends with Gunnar, Pedro, and Sagebrush leaving town. And you know what? I'm just glad that episode is done. Not a good one by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not sure it's as bad as Test of a Warrior. It was probably just downright offensive, but this episode is really not much higher than that, in my opinion. Maybe maybe you'll give it a few extra points if you like westerns or something, but they're not really my thing, and... I don't know, I just think there are better ways to... Take up Superman's time. That being said, I'm going to send out another solicitation for feedback. Send me some email at manofscreen at gmail.com, or you can leave me messages in the Facebook group under this particular episode or you can leave me reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. That will really help other people find the show. It'll help bump me up in the search feeds a little bit. You can also find me on Twitter. Handle is at screencast. And if you're going to talk about this show on the web, please use the hashtag manofscreenpodcast. So, Next time, Bob Fisher will be back and as Sylvester J. Superman will come to town in Flight to the North and then we will collect the Seven Souvenirs. So, until next time, folks, this is Mike Zumo saying thank you for listening. Have a good one. Bye. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all the opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests, and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyrighted their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is... ManOfScream.
2: and you can email the show at ManOfScream at gmail. Thanks for listening.